Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 96. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Siwad Al-Quran. Hello. Today, we're going to be discussing an article from The Atlantic, written in February of 1993, entitled Islam and Liberal Democracy, and this article is by Bernard Lewis. And by nature, it's a very sensitive article, but I'm glad you're here to discuss it because I will admit from the outset that I know next to nothing about Islam, Islamic culture, Islamic politics and governments and nations. And this article was helpful in laying certain groundwork, but by no means am I an expert. And so I was eager to talk to you and I'd be curious for the audience's sake and for my own how you might describe your background and perspective coming into this article. And then from there, I'd love to know what your initial impressions were. I'm really excited to be here. I think it's always an interesting topic, you know, especially I think right now the Middle East is kind of this word that's being thrown around. So I grew up Muslim. Both of my parents are Sunni Muslims. I grew up for the most part in Jordan. I was born and raised in Jordan. My family is, you know, I would say, religious. They pray, they fast, and I grew up with both of my parents practicing Islam. So reading the article was a little, it was an interesting read. I have mixed feelings about a lot of the things that were being said, but it was definitely an interesting read and I'll get that to a bit. But so I grew up in Jordan and then we traveled around a little bit because my dad was in the Air Force. So I lived in Utah for two years, which was really interesting. And then I went to boarding school in Jordan for four years and was mainly taught in English. We took U.S. history, U.S. government. So it was a lot of more a global education, I think, in a way, because we studied about a lot of different countries and we had more say in what we study and what we chose to study. And then I came to Kenyan College for college. So it was an interesting path going back and forth between Jordan and the United States. I think to start off with is that I have a bit of a problem with kind of dividing the world or saying, oh, the Middle East and Islam and then the US or Europe or, you know, on a more macro level of the West, because it reasserts the idea that they're two different worlds with two different systems of values and traditions and culture. And to an extent, you know, every place has its own culture and its own tradition. But I think it's dangerous to say, oh, Islam and the Middle East and then the West or the United States, mainly because even, you know, the Middle East, what is the Middle East? Are we talking about Arab countries or are we talking about Muslim countries? Because these are also two different things. And even among the Middle East, it's not just Muslims. <laughs> you have Christians and you have Jews and you have atheists. So it's very different. And I think the article definitely reasserted that idea that Islam and Muslims and the Middle East and Arabs, which are very big terms or vague terms, and then their relationship to democracy and kind of positioning that as opposed to the West's experience with liberal democracy. So I think that's in a way dangerous because then we start thinking about Muslims. We draw them all in one brush and as if they all think the same way or feel the same way when they don't, they really don't. You know, I have Muslim friends and we just have completely different views and completely different definitions of even what democracy is and what our countries or the future of our countries should be like. Just looking at our contemporary world and the contemporary Middle East, whatever that constitutes, it's a lot of things. It's a lot of different belief systems, even within the same communities of the same country. So I think saying Muslims and liberal democracy, I think just even that concept is too vague because 1.4 billion Muslims don't all feel the same way or agree on liberal democracy or what it should be. As I started reading it, I was turned off, let's say, by that separation of Muslims 
and then the rest of the world as if they're, you know, separate human beings with just separate weird systems that we don't really understand. I absolutely appreciate that point. And it is dangerous to generalize and to make broad strokes about how people behave and what people believe. But I do think if not in defense of Lewis's descriptions in an explanation for why he does this, as an author trying to explain something to a similarly large and broad audience, you can't always get into minutiae, which is unfortunate, and I wish it weren't that way. I think he's trying to explain something to people like me who know next to nothing about any sect or segment or portion of the Islamic world, and I know that that is not solely limited to the Middle East. But I also noticed that he painted a lot of issues militarily and noted that one reason the U.S. has emerged as a potential counterpart to the Middle East, to the Islamic portions of the Middle East, is that the Cold War determined the U.S. and therefore democracy to be, quote unquote, the strong or dominant force in the world militarily, which bothers me because I think that takes a very simplistic view of, one, what strength is, and two, suggests that the U.S. is the sole beneficiary or victor in the Cold War, when I think the Cold War determined a lot for everyone in the world. And he makes similar connections to the Ottoman Empire being, at least as far as I can tell, the last empire of the modern world that identified as an Islamic empire or an Islamic state. And then he delves into the perception of Arab weakness in contrast to European wars or occupation of similar territories that led to this doubt in the Islamic world or those who were subjects of the Ottoman Empire as feeling concerned about their cultural or religious survival. And in the same way that you were bothered by generalizations about these two halves of the world, I was bothered by very simplistic terms of strength and weakness because I don't think that a culture or a religion or certain radical offshoots of that religion, which may no longer tie back to the original belief system, are not solely motivated by a perception of ability or disability, strength or weakness. And I would really love to know what you thought about his descriptions of military dominance or subservience, because many things, including this, are far more complicated than simple descriptions. And I think one of the reasons that articles like Lewis's are prominent nowadays is because people are increasingly concerned about terrorism, specifically in a radicalized Islamic sense. And I hesitate there with vocabulary because I personally take issue with tying it back to a religion that I don't see as the root of the problem. But there's a larger discussion there as it relates to military. What are some of your responses to what Lewis said? The thing is, from a historical perspective in the Middle East, Arabs were not really happy with the rule of the Ottoman Empire. A lot of people look at it as a, it was like a colonizing, imperializing force. So it wasn't, you know, that Arabs wanted the Ottoman Empire to be in power. A lot of contemporary Middle Eastern countries, people living in what is now Jordan, for example, they were not happy with the Ottoman Empire and the rule of the Ottoman Empire in the region. So I think that's in itself a very complex topic and a very complex historical narrative that we can talk about for a very long time. And again, that goes back to my issue with a lot of the things that he said, because it was very vague, it was very general, but it was also attempting to answer or to, I guess, break down this really, really big question, but also using very, very big and vague terms. And I think when we look at Muslim countries, let me say, 
currently contemporary. They were not born in a vacuum, right? Is that the Arab world specifically, I think, in this context has been colonized by multiple powers, whether that be the Ottoman Empire or the French and the British. And it was this consistent cycle of them not having sovereignty of what the laws are, of what they're doing. So going from being ruled by the Ottomans to the French or the British, based on which country we're speaking about, took away that sovereignty. And then elements of imperialism still continues in a lot of these countries until today, whether we're talking about you know Tunisia or Algeria or Morocco, Lebanon, even Jordan. So they went through this whole long historical period of being colonized and imperialized and not having the sovereignty to do or the autonomy to rule or govern themselves, or for the people, let me say, to govern themselves. It was mostly governments imposed on the people through various means, which caused, I think, stagnation in education and social development and created, I think, forces of oppression and poverty that absolutely has still consequences up until today. And as for the military aspect of our discussion, I think... The military has become, as you talked about, you know, like weakness and strength and having a huge military has become a sign of strength, has become a sign of being powerful. And in even cases, people relate it to being democratic, being a democracy, you have a strong military, which I have a problem with because actually, let me backtrack. I think I also have a problem with the word democracy. So what do we mean when we say democracy? What does it mean when a country is democratic? There are clearly universal, I think, understandings of the word democracy, freedom of speech or freedom of religion, just freedom. What does that even mean? Uh, And I know I'm being very philosophical, I think, you know, questioning freedom and democracy. But I think that's a big part of the issue, actually, is that we think of democracy and then we immediately think, oh, the United States, that's what democracy is. But I mean, how is the United States a democracy and for whom specifically? Because I think as a male white person, You have a lot more rights and freedoms than, let's say, a person of color or a transgender woman or a transgender man. So then it becomes a question of rights. So is the U.S. a democracy for all members of society equally? Which also takes me back to the whole discussion of Israel as the only democracy in the Middle East, which a lot of people refer to Israel that way. But if you're a Muslim Arab or even if you're an Israeli Arab, in Israel, you don't have the same rights or the same access to institutions as an Israeli Jew. So then do we take out the equality aspect of democracy? So is democracy equal for all? Because it doesn't seem that way. I don't think we've yet reached, you know, whether in the United States or elsewhere, a place where everybody actually is equal. But we talk about democracy that way, is that this is what democracy is. And then taking the United States as an example, So a lot of Americans enjoy freedom of speech, not everyone equally, as we said before, but, you know, it's still more prominent in the United States than it is in other places, Jordan included. I mean, the way I see it as a person who grew up in the Middle East is as the United States, it's like this pink dream of democracy and freedom of speech, the American dream. But I think for a lot of people growing up in Arab countries, the U.S. was a threat. And I think of my Iraqi friends when I bring this up. For them, that military aspect that became a sign of strength in Lewis's article was for them a threat. It was maybe a strength to the United States' prestige as a leading country on the world stage. But I think for a lot of Iraqis and Afghanis and people in Vietnam, that military aspect actually crushed any hopes they had for democracy. 
just looking at Iraq today and my friends who still have families in Iraq today, where is that democracy that the United States was supposed to introduce to Iraq to kind of put in place? It's not democracy. Iraq is a mess. So I would like to know more about what Lewis meant. He says the liberal democracy. Can a Muslim country become a liberal democracy? What does that entail? What does that mean? Can a Muslim country become what? Can it become equal? Can it become economically successful? Can it have a strong military? Can it emerge as a world power? So I think it'd be interesting to dive in more into what democracy entails. What do we want from democracy? All of which are very good questions. And to me, on some level, this boils down to a semantic discussion about religion and government and the role they can serve in people's lives, not necessarily as diametrically opposed, but as different means of reaching security, knowledge, fellowship with other human beings in your community, and an overall sense of purpose and a framework to one's life. And so I might have preferred an examination of the differences between religious faith and political dedication, because from my perspective, religion is not inherently opposed to a government unless the government presumes some superiority to a higher power or a force greater than humanity. But to me, a question that emerged in the article and in my general vague and probably incorrect understanding is that I would say to drastically simplify the following. In a democracy, the individual is supposed to have agency and power to a degree and that your vote and your voice mean a lot. And you, together with your friends, family, and political allies, can change the way your country is run. Whereas in a religion, and I don't think this is exclusive to Islam, you submit yourself as a servant to or a messenger of a higher or more valuable purpose or principle than yourself. And the individual is not the most important entity in that relationship or that system, but rather a conduit in a sense. And a lot of the respect I have for various religious traditions, including my vague understanding of Islam, is a submission to those principles and those beliefs. But I'd be curious to know, again, in an admittedly reductive sense, what your definitions are of democracy and religion, perhaps specifically Islam, given your background. Do you think the individual does function in ways I've described in either of those two systems? It's a hard question. And I agree, I think, I mean, at least personally speaking from a very personal opinion, is that the individual should have their own agency and should have power to change things, or they should feel at least that they are empowered and that they can change things and that they do matter. I think in Islam, I think it's a misconception that I just w would like to say that I definitely don't speak for all Muslims or even just the closest Muslims that I know people might have different opinions. But I think, you know, growing up practicing Islam or practicing being a Muslim was never about being a servant or being submissive to, for example, the government. Because in a very religious and mystical sense, your relationship with God, at least the way I grew up, was your relationship with God. It was stressed that, yes, no one is more powerful than God, but because no one was more powerful and merciful, and those two went always together, I think, at least in my household, I like was supposed to be confident in who I am 
and what I'm doing because God is the only person who can judge me. And that if I think something is right, I should stand up for it because it doesn't matter what everyone around me is saying. If I believe it's right, then I should stand my ground. If you think what you're doing is right or believe it's right, then you stand up for what's right. You stand up for your rights or you stand up for your values. You stand up for your standards. I think personally, you know, I try to do that as long as I'm not hurting anyone around me. That's why I say that based on the same logic, you can go to a very, very dark path and, you know, you're doing things that are hurting people, but in your head, these things are right and only God can judge you. So who cares what everybody around you thinks? Back to my personal experience, my parents, it wasn't like only God can judge you. So do whatever you want. There were specific rules, specific limits that were set for me growing up. It wasn't like I could do whatever I wanted to do. A lot of people look at Islam and kind of assume that it's this political system that all Muslims follow. And it's not even when we're, you know, even in Jordan. Yes, there are aspects of the law that are claimed to be based on religious texts and are claimed to be based on religious teachings but it's not a sharia law like it bothers me that whole like the whole phrase sharia law also bothers me because in any religion religious texts are so easy to manipulate you know i could take one verse and i could come up with a really good interpretation that benefits someone for it but i could take that same verse and twist it in a way that i can use for really really bad things so i think looking at islam as this political system is in itself flawed Because a lot of people are religious and they practice Islam, but they believe in a secular political system. Me included and a lot of, I think, people I grew up with in high school and just in my childhood, we fast during Ramadan and we celebrate the Eid. But we don't believe that a political system should be based on religious teachings. We are secular in that way, which is why it's dangerous, I think, to say, let's look at Islam at the U.S. government. Are they compatible or are they not? Because... We have a lot of American Muslims who vote and are interacting and are behaving within the American political system, but are still Muslims. So it's that separation, you know, is that Islam is not a political system. It's a religion. Definitely people, I think, manipulate parts of it to say Islam says this and built this whole oppressive government on it, but say, but God said so. We have to do this because God said so. Looking at a lot of countries in the Middle East that do that, it's dangerous because one, and most importantly, they are pressing basic rights of individuals. And two, they contribute to the image that Islam is a political system. Muslims all should believe this. All of Muslims should do this. But I think it would be interesting to bring up how the United States government or how other political agents benefit from that. Saudi Arabia, for example, looking at their laws, not a single other country surrounding Saudi Arabia have the same set of laws, but we're all Muslim countries. Looking at Saudi, they have such a strong relationship with the United States, but a lot of Muslims have fundamental issues with Saudi Arabia and with the way that their government runs and with the way they treat their people, specifically women. You know, women still can't drive in Saudi Arabia. That's definitely not the case in Jordan. It's not the case in Lebanon. It's not the case in Syria. But very rarely do you see the United States government criticize Saudi Arabia for their violation of human rights. That is consistent. Not allowing women to drive is just constant. It's not like some days are allowed and some days they're not. They're just always not allowed to drive. But we don't see, you know, the United States government criticize that. 
because Saudi Arabia benefits the United States government's personal advantage, I would say. But then again, you know, we look at the U.S. media and then we see all of these misconceptions, all of these images that are not true being forced on Muslims. But these images kind of come or like are based on systems such as the one Saudi Arabia have. But then, you know, it becomes all Muslims, all Arabs, all of the Middle East when it's not. Do you get what I'm saying or what I'm trying to like imply there? Absolutely. There are strong alliances of economic, political, and cultural advantage in many ways, which lead to clear biases and prevent criticism where it is due and where countries are in the wrong against their people, and also to an extent in their responsibility towards non-citizens, those who don't live in their countries. And by that, I mean that I think it's important in our highly connected world to give an accurate depiction of your culture, of your beliefs to people who do not live in your country in case they might want to live there or, as this podcast is an example, if they want to understand where you're coming from and what you hope to do with your time, do with your life. Because what I ultimately find are countless examples of people and governments and communities trying to appear as something they are not. And that leads to a whole lot of misinformation and deception and a lot of political maneuvering in which not a lot is accomplished except several rhetorical hurdles to prevent people from truly understanding what's going on. And I think that shroud of communication leads to issues like those you mentioned, where people are not criticized, governments are not scrutinized despite their wrongdoing. And relating to the media, Lewis notes the Ayatollah Khomeini's words, and again, this is in 1993, that he saw or described the U.S. at one point as Satan, not in the sense that American citizens or maybe Christians might interpret that term, but rather to mean a deceiver or a force of temptation. And in my understanding of Lewis's words, he's referring to a cultural, maybe even a pop cultural temptation that the U.S. in broadcasting a lot of media, a lot of imagery, is responsible for quote-unquote corrupting the culture or the personality of certain Arab or Islamic countries. And I'd really like to know what you thought about that passage in Lewis's article or if you would have a different interpretation than Lewis did. There are definitely people, different individuals or different groups who look at the U.S. or look at Europe as this entity that is corrupting our youth, that is corrupting Islamic values, that is spreading these ideas that don't match with our culture or tradition. But I think Khomeini or others, who are they speaking for? Because a lot of them don't have people behind them speaking, but they have the political outlet to say these things, to speak on behalf of people who they do not necessarily represent or have their support. So personally growing up, I listened to English music. We've seen American reality TV shows, American movies. So it's inevitable because the world is so globalized right now that you would be really missing out if you only limit yourself to what, you know, whether we're talking about music or literature or film, is that you probably should watch more or listen to more than where you live or what your country produces, for example. So I think, you know, what Khomeini said, and I, I, that comment actually by Khomeini gets brought up a lot in these kinds of discussions, but I think it gets 
brought up in the wrong way. I mean, clearly what he said was ridiculous because he doesn't even, you know, really specify what he means by, you know, American values or the corruption of the youth. How are these youth being corrupted by listening to music? But again, Khomeini had a very, very different interpretation of Islam than I do, for example, or than people I know do. And I think that's the most important part that I would emphasize is that people have different interpretations of Islam. So again, you know, it's not a political system. It's not exactly a set in stone cultural code that everybody follows and does the same everywhere. And Jordan and many countries have a lot of things that are wrong and have a lot of things that need to be fixed. Whether that comes to women rights, whether that comes to education, corruption, government reformation, there are a lot of problems that need to be fixed. And having these discussions is not to say that all of these problems are not there. They are there and they, they need to be fixed and they need to be addressed. But I don't think it helps to address them from the perspective saying it's Islam that is causing all of these problems because it's very specific systems and governments that are causing all of these problems. Specific officials who are corrupted and who steal most of government budgets that are supposed to be going to refugees and who are supposed to be going into public education and providing more opportunities for women employment. They are the same officials who take or steal the money from government budgets that's supposed to go to public education, to women opportunities for employment, money that's supposed to be going into refugees, are the same officials who I see go on, you know, TV, locally or internationally to say, God said so, Islam says this, Islam says that. But, you know, I could argue that, not I could argue, you know, I, in fact, I do believe that Islam stresses honesty stresses being genuine and stresses being transparent. And so they're doing what Islam says you shouldn't be doing. But then we take what they say and look at it as if that's what all Muslims believe. And I think to blame religion, you know, whether that be Islam or whether that be Christianity or any religion, for government failures, for economic failures, for political failures, for military failures, which Lewis kind of suggests, is a little bit ridiculous. It doesn't really make sense to me because how is it that it was this religion? Maybe it was people's interpretation of the religion. Then yes, that could definitely be an argument. But again, we're talking about a lot of people. <laughs> In the article, Lewis kind of questions or tries to put out the question, why were Arabs failing? Military speaking, why were Arabs failing? And then it was interesting to me in the section where he said, the Arab failures in the struggle against Israel, particularly in 1948 and in 1967, revived the great debate on what is wrong with Arab and more broadly Islamic society. I think that ties it back to our first discussion is that Arab and Islam are not the same thing and they're not tied together, but we somehow use them interchangeably as if they're the same thing and they're not because we have Christian Arabs who are fighting the occupation or who are against the occupation, who fought in these wars, whether that be in 1948 or in 1967. But Lewis goes on to say, like the Turks after their failure to capture Vienna, so the Arabs after their failure to capture Jerusalem began by seeing this as a primarily military problem for which there was a military solution, bigger and better armies with bigger and better weapons, which I disagree with. I don't think the question was very political. 
just from having Palestinian heritage and just from growing up among people who are Palestinian and Arabs in general, actually. And when I say Arabs, I'm talking about, you know, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, is that it wasn't a military issue. It was more that there was an occupation. So what do you do, you know, with an occupation? And I think that was the main issue. And I have a problem with the way he phrases this is that it's very oversimplified as if, as he says, the Arabs and Islamic societies kind of said, oh, we just need a bigger military. That's all there is. But he doesn't really provide statistics or evidence or any backups to whatever he's trying to get at, which I'm still not sure if he's just posing a question or if he's making a statement. But I think that's a very oversimplification of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which he describes as an Arab-Israeli conflict, which to an extent, you know, was at some point, but now all of these countries actually have treaties with Israel. But again, I think, you know, he makes it seem as if it was a military question and somehow the Islamic character of Arabs made them think that way and thus they failed. So did they fail because they were quote-unquote Islamic? But I think my main problem with it was that he said... <laughs> Arab or Islamic societies. And again, they're not the same thing because there are Christian Arabs, there are Jewish Arabs. I just think it's problematic because then we're excluding a lot of people who are not Muslim and who don't believe in Islam, but they're still Arab and they still live in these countries and they still disagree or agree with a lot of things. Confusing Arabs and Muslims as the same thing is dangerous because there are many, many, in fact, most Muslims are not Arab. And then a lot of Arabs are not Muslim. And I think using those terms interchangeably and consistently together pushes out a lot of people who are already minorities and who are oppressed in different ways to the side and make their opinions matter less when their opinions and what they perceive Islam or Arab entity as is very important. I agree. And before we close this episode, what are some things you would like the audience to think about after listening to this discussion as it relates either to what we have said or to Lewis's article, which we will, of course, attach a link to on this episode? We talked about a lot of big ideas and a lot of general things. And if anybody really think most importantly has critiques or have problems with anything that we've said, please reach out. Let me know, because clearly I might be wrong. I might have said some things that might offend other people, but I really would like to know about any criticism or any comments that I made that might have been problematic. But I think generally reading the article and listening to our discussion is just to keep in mind that the West versus the rest discourse is dangerous because we then assume things about each other that are not true, or we make very vague generalizations about each other that are also not true. And we then tend to define specific societies or specific communities by very simply geographically where they are, or by simply the religion that they practiced. When, you know, different people in the same religion practice very, very, very differently from one end of the spectrum to the other. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that when we speak about military and governments and history, religion is not the only factor that shapes all of these things. Religion is just one of many. We have to consider colonization, imperialism, war, education, poverty. All of these things shape people's lives and shape the way they think and shape the way they decide to live their lives. 
In fact, I would argue that they shape how people perceive religion. Specifically, when we're talking about Islam, we're talking about a lot of people. <laughs> so it's very dangerous, very, very dangerous to paint them all in one brush, I would say. And it's just, it's oppressing them more. It excludes and pushes out a lot of opinions and a lot of the discourse that we need to be having to be more productive and in order to humanize Muslims and to humanize people living in the Middle East. And if we're talking about Arabs, Muslim and non-Muslim Arabs. And I think lastly, I would say to be aware of what we define democracy as when we talk about it in regards to Islam or in regards to the Middle East. And these are two different things, I repeat. <laughs> just to define what we think about. What, what is democracy? What do we think democracy is? Is the United States a democracy? And based on our definition of the word, and in fact, you know, does democracy work everywhere? But then again, I think all of these questions go back to our definition of democracy. All of which are good questions. And I too would urge any listener to think about how they might define the religious system or political system within which they live. And if you are American, how you define democracy. And if you are a Muslim, how you define Islam in any number of ways, because there are, of course, billions of people affected by both of these systems, which are not necessarily opposites in the way that Lewis somewhat suggests. And I would love to know what listeners think of his article if you choose to read it. And of course, to scholars or anyone out there who might know more than we do, we would love to hear from you. And I would also be curious to hear about listeners' thoughts on the separation of church and state as we define it in the U.S., because religious and political systems, as far as I'm concerned, do not need to oppose one another, but in certain instances in human history have done so. And I would really love to know what people think about how they can or cannot work together and Siwar, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on to discuss this. Thank you for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed this. As did I. It was great to have you. But of course, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. As we've said at multiple points, we're only two people. There are countless interpretations and opinions on the ideas and systems that we have discussed. And we would genuinely love to hear from listeners. If you have any corrections or points you would like to make, please reach out to us. You can connect with us on Twitter or Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show and sharing it with someone that you think might enjoy it or get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.